morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 23 through 26 and 33 through 34. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the Master himself and passed them on to you. The Master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he did the same with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of our Master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again, until the Master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. So, my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous with one another. If you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. But by no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or into a family squabble. It is a spiritual meal, a love feast. The other things you asked about, I'll respond to you in person when I make my next visit. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I just noticed that there's no message in the the bulletin, so I don't know what to do at this point. I even edited this uh, for Jessica, so... I am going to deliver a message this morning because I want to tell you about what people are saying about the Methodists. You know, they, they talk about us, right? Um, Garrison Keeler, longtime host of the Prairie Home Companion and humorist, had this to say about us Methodists. He said, we make fun of Methodists for their blandness, their excessive calm, their fear of giving offense, their lack of speed, and also for their secret fondness for macaroni and cheese. But nobody sings like them. He says, I do believe this. People, these Methodists who love to sing in four-part harmony are the sort of people you can call up when you're in deep distress. If you're dying, they will comfort you. If you're lonely, they will talk to you. And if you're hungry, they will give you chicken salad. Methodists believe in prayer, but would practically die if asked to pray aloud. Methodists like to sing, except for when confronted with a new hymn, or a hymn with more than four stanzas. Methodists believe their pastors will visit them in the hospital, even if they don't notify them that they are there. Methodists think that the Bible forbids them from crossing the aisle while passing the peace. And that's why we do it after church now. We've learned. Methodists drink coffee as if it were the third sacrament. And Methodists believe that it's okay to poke fun at themselves and never take themselves too seriously. And finally, you know you're a Methodist when 
you hear something funny in the sermon, and you smile as loudly as you possibly can. Donuts are a line item in the church budget. No, wait, no, no, that's the youth group's job here, okay? Not in the budget. We take care of that. Uh, When you watch a Star Wars movie and they say, may the force be with you, and you respond, and also with you, it's 100 degrees with 90% humidity. Whoever, you know, Garrison Keillor must have visited Kansas City. And he said, you still have coffee after church. Amen. And lastly, it takes 10 minutes to say goodbye if you're a Methodist. I hate to admit it, but Garrison Keillor kind of nailed it. We are friendly, but we're not overly emotional. We cherish our music, and we love food and fellowship. You know who else nailed it? My great Aunt Lois, a lifelong Presbyterian who attended the combined United Methodist Presbyterian Church of Natoma, Kansas. Now, that's another story for another time, how those two churches came together. But whenever we were talking about some event we were planning, or a meeting, or just any sort of church function, really, of course, the topic of food would come up, and who should bring what, or what we should serve. And my great-aunt Lois, she had a big old chuckle, and she said, When the Methodists meet, the Methodists eat. I do believe that was her favorite saying. I grew up hearing her say that, but I thought, well, maybe that's just the Natoma Methodist. And then I got to St. John's five years ago. And my first Sunday here, you all had a first feast. A feast? Okay, I thought, these people are not messing around. They don't just have lunch. They feast. But in all seriousness, it was the most prominent memory I had of that first Sunday here at St. John's with my family. Because people visited with us, and they welcomed us. They said, oh, come sit with us. And they took the time to just visit with us and connect with us in a way that I know would not have happened just strictly in a worship setting. The real way to get to know someone is over fried chicken and mashed potatoes. And the rest is history. From there, my husband David and I have joined the Dinner for Eight group. We've helped with the missions dinner fundraiser. My daughter Iris and I cook pretty much monthly for neighbor to neighbor. We pack lunches for harvesters. We've made food for folks recovering from surgery, provided desserts for funeral dinners and bake sales, and eaten countless meals with all of you at gatherings, meetings, Bible studies, and the like. When the Methodists meet, the Methodists eat. But why? This is something that I have been thinking about for a while now. I mean, I know we all love food, but it's more than that. It seems like an insanely obvious point to utter that food is cultural, it's tradition. The tastes and smells of certain foods connect us with our ancestors, our heritage, and our childhood. Some of our most precious customs involve food, its meaning and preparation, are painstakingly preserved and passed down through the generations. It's how we celebrate, how we comfort and sustain ourselves. And yet, it's so much more than that. Like a sacred truth programmed into our very DNA, a meal when done right 
is much more than just sustenance. And you know who taught us that? Jesus. Jesus taught us that. When Bible commentators said meals feature so prominently in the Gospels that scholars have commented, Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Herbert Anderson and Edward Foley even claim they killed him because of the way he ate and the way he drank with sinners. Jesus revealed the kingdom as he shared meals with others. And Jesus' fellowship meals are formative for the mission of the local church today. And I think that would be a fascinating sermon for another time about who Jesus chose to eat with. But we're going to just talk and think about this morning about meals in general. I'm going to give you a minute. We're going to go interactive. Um, Think about New Testament stories of Jesus eating or or partaking in a meal during his life and ministry. One minute. Go. Don't say anything yet. Just think. Tick, tick, tick. Maybe another thing is that Methodists don't like silence. Or maybe that's just me. Okay. That wasn't a minute. But you got it? Tell me. What, what is a meal that you recall that Jesus either hosted or partook in or was involved in? Just shout it out. Okay. Did I hear fish? Somebody say, Mary and Martha, feeding of the 5,000, wedding feast, that's the first one I put down, the last supper, important, how about a meal with Zacchaeus, how about a meal at the house of a Pharisees, how about the resurrection meal uh, that he had, he had two of those. One on the road to Emmaus and his breakfast on the beach. So those are just a few examples, probably some that you're like, oh, I knew that. But they're, they're spread throughout the Gospels, aren't they? But there is one meal that someone mentioned that rises above all others, a meal that we celebrate and revere and emulate, the Last Supper. It's our spiritual meal, a love feast, as we have heard in our scriptures this morning. And not only does Christ provide the meal that binds us together in love and forgiveness, but he is the meal. He declares it to be so. John 6, 36, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more and thirsts no more ever. I have told you this explicitly because even though you have seen me in action, You don't really believe me. Every person the Father gives me eventually comes running to me. And once that person is with me, I hold on and I don't let go. Now, I personally find it very fascinating that of all the acts, events, human rituals, or simulations that one could think of or conceive, Jesus used the common everyday meal to express the one last essential tenet that we as his followers are supposed to get. That through his sacrificial death and resurrection, a new covenant had finally come to fruition. And these were the acts that Jesus wanted us to model with our whole hearts, 
until the kingdom has finally come in its totality. You know, our Lord could have chosen a different way. We could be dancing every Sunday. You know, we could be singing a song. We could be doing something really weird that I can't think of right now. But he could have chosen something else to express this. And yet Jesus uses food and drink, the very essentials that we need to survive. And he took this intimate act of breaking bread with friends and disciples, and he turned it into his final supper, the Last Supper, a supper that Christ wants us to fully engage in time and time again. But just like Paul warns us, and he warned the church in Corinth, he said, don't, you know, don't let the Eucharist become stale. You know, don't forget its meaning. Don't take it for granted. Paul tells them, let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. And then later he says, what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the Master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the Master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. And so today we are drawn back to this meal once again, the Lord's Supper. And friends, I don't want to let this meal that was prepared for each and every one of us to become trite and empty with formalism. Today I want to share with you an idea, a thought. This isn't law. This is just something for us to ponder. We may not all agree. But I want us to think about something before we set the Lord's table and the invitation is extended. I want you to consider these words or perhaps reconsider these words you have heard so many times before. Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Now let me introduce and invite Ignatius of Antioch to the table this morning. Ignatius, you know him, don't you? Totally. He was an early Christian writer and bishop of Antioch. And on his way to Rome is where he met his martyrdom. Ignatius wrote a series of letters. The correspondence now forms a central part of the latter collection known as the Apostolic Fathers. His letters also serve an example of early Christian theology. Another thing about Ignatius you should know was that his grammar in the Greek language was impeccable. Most would say flawless. He does not write like I do. And yet in one of his letters, there was an error or a disagreement with his usage. Pronouns must agree with their antecedents. And as it was explained to me, professor and biblical thinker Dr. Gary Snyder found in his research that when Ignatius of Antioch wrote, this is my body, this is my blood, 
the word this in Greek, the pronoun this, the pronoun that Ignatius chose, agrees not with either the Greek words for body or for blood, but diakonia, meaning the fellowship gathered around the table or the fellowship of the gathered. Now, I talked really slow because I thought maybe that way you would get it. That's how I had to do it. Did you hear it? Did you catch what's going on there? The word this, if we read Ignatius correctly, it goes beyond the traditional this, where Jesus is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. It's as if Jesus were holding the bread and looking out to his friends and followers and saying, this, all of you, are my bread. This is my blood. All of you are my blood. He's talking about word choice here, people. It's about community. It's about the church. It's about all of us right here and now. It was as if Jesus was giving the disciples a foretaste of what the church would endure as the collective body of Christ. It, too, would be broken, and blood would be shed for spreading the gospel message much in the same way that Christ would experience it himself. I simply am suggesting, friends, that in this communion we celebrate, this Last Supper, which is so rich with its beautiful imagery and metaphor, it is very likely a multi-dimensional experience for us. On the one level, the Holy Spirit is a deeply intimate and personal act, connecting us with Christ in a tangible, physical way while remembering what Christ has done. We ingest and embody the elements that are provided. Those elements are love and forgiveness. And yet today, we perhaps look at communion through a different lens, that the Lord's Supper is also about us, this community of believers. And it is in this way that we need to be fully present at the table, that we continue to set the table for this spiritual meal that was so lovingly provided for us through the death of our Lord and Savior. Jesus chose a meal Jesus chose a way to give us the lesson one last time before he faced his death. I'd like to think that he did it in a way that would speak to us, nourish us, connect us, and bring us together to celebrate the hope of what his mighty acts would bestow onto us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper as individuals, as community. As an individual believer, we remember as a member of the body of the risen Christ, we act. When we take communion, let us be mindful of the liturgy. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ 
that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. And finally, after Holy Communion, we dine together in fellowship. We come together as a faith community, a family, the body of Christ to share, to partake in story, laughter, and unity. We strengthen our bonds of community, not through the Eucharist, but in another way, in a way that Jesus also enjoyed, a time to break bread and eat together in friendship and love. Not the spiritual meal of the Eucharist, but a meal that embodies the fundamental components of the Eucharist, communion with the risen Lord in the midst of his people. And we do this because, after all, when the Methodists meet, the Methodists eat. Would you join me in prayer? Dear Lord, what must it have been like to dine with you, to be in your company, to be a part of your table? We think of these things from time to time, and we know that you enjoyed meeting and eating with your friends and followers. With your meals, you taught us many lessons, and we thank you for setting the table one last time for all of humanity. We praise you and remember your great and selfless act of love and forgiveness each time we partake in Holy Communion. We know in these communal elements you are present with us, and yet we come to see that perhaps we too, your church, your people, who have come to represent your body and your mission in the world, that we are reflected in those same elements too. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting the table with your love, grace, and forgiveness. And thank you for inviting each of us so that both as individuals and as community, we may come to know you more deeply. Amen. Amen.